Welcome to Revolver Reads, a book club Russian roulette. We're a podcast where we let the wheel of doom enlighten us or bring our minds further into the depths of hell. Or neither, who knows, because we don't. I don't want to rain on anyone's parade, but it will be the middle of August by the time this episode comes out, which means summer is basically over. The silver lining to this sad reminder is that the wheels pick is almost in time for us Canadians to start thinking about going back to school and basically time for you unlucky Americans that start school in August. Let us know if any other international listeners start school in August as well or any earlier. Without further ado, we'd like to thank myself and the wheel for this stunning and apropos read. Babel, or The Necessity of Violence by R.F. Klong, in a rather fortunate turn of events, this was a direct response to our last month's read, The Secret History. So I'm sure we are all eager to sink our teeth into this one. So please grab the aforementioned supplies from the previous episode. And remember that even though your children yearn for the mines, doesn't mean they should be in the mines. Traditore, traditore. An act of translation is always an act of betrayal. 1828, Robin Swift, orphaned by cholera in Canton, is brought to London by the mysterious Professor Lovell. There, he trains for years in Latin, ancient Greek, and Chinese, all in preparation for the day he'll enroll in Oxford University's prestigious Royal Institute of Translation, also known as Babel. Babel is at the world's center for translation and, most importantly, magic. Silver working, the art of manifesting the meaning lost in translation using enchanted silver bars, has made the British unparalleled in power, as its knowledge serves the empire's quest for colonization. For Robin, Oxford is a utopia dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge, but knowledge obeys power, and as a Chinese boy raised in Britain, Robin realizes serving Babel means betraying his motherland. As his studies progress, Robin finds himself caught between Babel and the shadowy Hermes Society, an organization dedicated to stopping imperial expansion. When Britain pursues an unjust war with China over silver and opium, Robin must decide, can powerful institutions be changed from within, or does revolution always require violence? As you can tell from the book summary, Robin Swift's life begins in tragedy, and he's not alone in his misfortune. In his cohort at Oxford, he meets Rami, a tenacious and astute child born in the heat of Calcutta and brought under the cold and miserable skies of England due to the whim of Sir Horace Wilson, who wanted to show him off like a prize show pony. Then we have Victoire, brilliant as always, and unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time. Her mother was the maid to an exiled French queen who escaped the Haitian rebellion with her servants in tow. Back in France, she loses her mother to illness and all ties to her motherland. And then there's Letty. Enough about her. The four of them are a tragedy waiting to happen as their friendships are fated to fail due to the ravenous and insatiable appetite of the British Empire. However, they are drawn into the grand illusion of studying at the Royal Institute of Translation at Oxford because that is what the Beast wanted. They ate scones together, basked in the occasional patch of sunlight, studied and lived together. All the while, Robin was enlisted by his half-brother Griffin into the Hermes Society, a secret rebellion mostly populated by people of color attempting to fight against the British Empire by stealing silver from Babel. Victoire and Rami soon follow suit, which leads the crew into an even stickier, or should we say bloodier, situation. 
As a warning to new and returning listeners, this is most definitely not a spoiler-free zone. Also, please take a look at our trigger list found in our episode description before you continue. My name is Vanessa. My name is Rebecca. And I'm Nav. Welcome to Revolver Reads. So, what did we think? Um, there's a lot of feelings to be had. There's like so much intersectionality. It wasn't even if intersectionality is even the right word. <laughs> it feels like a sphere of all the issues. It's not like a crossroads. It's just everything all at once, if that makes sense. Like, it's just so much. I saw a review and it described it as a cocktail. And I kind of like that allegory. Yeah, that's a much better one because everything is intermingled instead of it being like cleanly. Oh, this is the intersect, the intersectionality of being, <laughs> God help me, of uh, being a woman, but also being black, but also being Haitian specifically, like, but also everything all at once at the same time so it's like yeah i think a cocktail is much better of an explanation than like the idea of like intersectionality being a crossroads in this novel it's like everything is layered i just wish i took like the tiktok reviews a little more seriously because whenever i would see people like crying about it i'm like okay they're being a little dramatic and then i read this at work and had to like fully just pause and go to the washroom because there is a scene near the end that just it's not even like, I don't know if it, if I would call it tragic. It's just fucking gut-wrenching that like I, I couldn't. I, and I usually don't cry for books very easily, but I, I sobbed. I so couldn't. what was the moment? What was it's the when, moment? It's when he's going to, he's he knows he's going to die and he thinks back to that first like little picnic with Rami. I like, I, I kind of lost it. Oh, because they're really gay. They're, they're so, so gay. gay. <laughs> so glad we all agree <laughs> from the beginning i knew it was like this is very homosexual in the best way when um it was amazing because rami was looking into the sun out of their right their their apartment their room that they have for oxford and robin's just staring at him in the way that the sun is just like basking on his face and he goes up to touch him and rami looks at him saying like are you okay and robin's like yeah yep. i'm good <laughs> i'm good i'm like oh my god it's oh my love. god yeah literally no it was uh, it was so fucking good like i actually cried i'm angry and like happy about that because it was honestly i think an amazing book to read it wasn't at all what i expected especially on the tale of like the secret history that we just read they're both the same genre i would say but so completely different in the sense i think that this book had characters that we loved. It was a completely different outcome that we were looking for. And, you know, the other one, we hated everyone, but it was still a great book. It, it was just, it was a lot. And it just, I felt a lot. That's all I have to say. Because technically, uh, Babel was a response to the secret history and the way that a lot of the same themes were sort of imbued into the novel, but were executed way differently. For example, like... The idea of isolation, but isolation was really only the weapon of empire and colonization and the overarching systems. Meanwhile, like community was really the thing that saved all of them in the end or the save the ones that like did the work. Essentially, being able to come together was the only thing that could actually get the action done, like the Hermes Society as compared to Oxford, which isolated even the smartest people in the world to the point where they had no idea what was really going on. Or, like, encourage them at least to take a blind eye, if that makes sense, like, to the horrors that they're really enacting all over all over the globe. I, I agree with that completely. 
the way the environments work in both is like super interesting because even how he describes London when they first get there, it's all about like these opposing things that exist at the same time. And it's like a perfect reflection of how Robin himself is feeling. I think I wrote down the the part. Um, London was drab and gray, but it was also exploding with color. It was a raconous din bursting with life yet eerily quiet, haunted by ghosts and graveyards. And then a couple of lines later, he's like, he learned that London was a city that could not decide what it wanted to be. And I feel like the environment does a great job of that, like the isolation theme, but also just like giving us what Robin's kind of feeling and going to feel throughout the novel. Yeah, because honestly, London in this scenario or like in this novel is described as to be like, not even London, but England as a whole, but primarily London because there's so many different cultures that are sort of being harvested in a way in one place. It is very much how like Robin himself was harvested from his own country, right? So it's just the appropriation of both cultures and literally people in this instance, multiple people, like everyone that was basically a person of color in the Hermes Society. And you can say what you want in terms of like London and the way that it sort of absorbs people. It was very much a reflection of you're correct, like of how how Robin was essentially taken and not sure what exactly he wanted to be as well. Since that's the beginning of the book, do we kind of want to start our conversation there with Robin kind of being orphaned and taken by Professor Lovell? Oh, for sure. Did anyone get She Who Becomes a Sun vibes with the lack of a name and like... A little bit, yeah. I didn't want to compare the two, but yes, the name is like thing is so important in both of those novels. Yeah, especially in this one. I actually reached out to a friend of mine that is Chinese because I know there's there is a thing with having a Chinese name and a quote unquote American name in terms of immigration and just the way that she described it was to essentially to make it easier. But it was just it was so much it was so different with the way that it was bought up in this book, because it isn't even like, it's not a choice. I think I was talking to Vanessa about this last night. Is it Lovell? I called him multiple different things. Lovell. Asshole being one of them. Lovell, Lovell um, yeah. Lovell, like, is deliberately erasing his lineage and connection. Like, at no point, even when he, there, and there's multiple instances of this in the book, when he says Robin Swift, and then he's like, oh, like, you mean my Chinese name? And we never actually get to hear it. It exists, but it's this it's this thing of him that Lovell has like basically effectively wiped away to the point that it's not even a first thought to introduce himself as even when he's in, he's speaking his language and he's back in Canton. It's not his it's no longer his identity, like that lineage and um, the mark of belonging to a community like that was effectively erased in like one fell swoop for him. Agreed. I have so many feelings about the the naming especially because I agree with you completely. It was almost like a forced assimilation. He basically just picked a, a, a name off of like a nursery rhyme. And then because he'd read Gulliver's Travel so many times, he picked Swift based off of like Jonathan Swift. He just he was like taking bits and pieces of the culture he was being forced into rather than getting his own. I think when you talked about the scene that made you cry, the scene that made me tear up was that very last line, actually. Stop. It was like Robin shut his eyes and imagined his mother's face. She smiles Stop. and says his name. 
brutal. I was like, yeah, not only is it brutal, but I was like the power in his final moments of kind of reclaiming his name. It's a moment for him and his mother. And it's a moment of like power, a moment of grief, like the empire, the university, like it took so much from him, his body, his mind, his friend. If we're talking about him and Remy being gay, he took the person he loved. Ultimately, it takes his life. But like the end of the book is like he doesn't get his name like that's his. We as the readers don't even get it. It's it belongs to this character. And that was like I was like, you know, when you get that feeling in the back of your throat where I was like getting all choked up. Like, I think that was such a beautiful fucking choice just to keep it for him. That one link that we as an audience don't need to know. It's not for us to to know or reclaim. It's it's his and. I think at that point, Vanessa, I was crying as well because at like towards the end, I was just crying. Like it was just, I was just like a mess. But yeah, no, I think that was like the most perfect ending for his story completely. Because I think again, it just brought everything full circle that he actually goes. I guess there was sort of like, in a way, as like tragic as it is, he did reunite eventually with like his mother, his like his homeland, everything, and. He's reconnecting, unfortunately, <laughs> in a way. And I think also just speaking back to what you were speaking about before, Nav, how like the he was completely isolated because of Lovell stripping him of his name. And it wasn't even a question of that was the intention either from like, because by the middle of the book, he's been instructed like that his people have been, again, like trigger warning racism and all the other disgusting like facets that come with this novel um that he's basically worthless or like the place that he comes from the people there are worthless and lazy and mm-hmm. all these other things i think like one time he he was inquiring about his mother like this woman that you had relationships with like you had a baby he was like she was just a woman and then he also called her a slur at some other point so it's just yeah. like lovell has no regard and again it's like i guess it was just like an extreme a very extreme version of what we're used to seeing today where a lot of white people just take what they want out of a culture without any kind of respect for it. And it's because this is this is now theirs. Like they like the way that this the way it serves them, but they have no regard for the actual place that it comes from and the people. He was just, he well, just became a thing. On that on the subject of how he talks about Robin's mother, I found it so interesting because it, it it was in the back of my mind comparing the way he talks about a woman he had a child with, even if it was just to foster for this sick plan of assimilating him into Babel that he had, there was more of a reaction for it's Emma, right? The student that dies. No, Evelyn Brooke. Yeah. He is more of, he tears up. He actually shows emotion at the idea of what her death was. Someone that he probably was, he didn't know that well. He's not someone that's very close with his students either. In comparison to the mother of his bastard child, even though he doesn't acknowledge that until like his death, I believe. I think that's like the first time he openly says something. Yeah, he like calls him dad. Yep. And I was just like, wow, like what a piece of fucking shit Lava was. I have so many feelings about specifically Evelyn. Just because it's like it was very much that performance of like not just white fragility, but there's a specific way that the patriarchy sort of operates um, around the English rose. Yeah, not even English rose about white women generally, how they have to be protected. Um, And that was also very present in like the antebellum South, where if any white woman had a relationship with, let's say, one of their black slaves, that would be even if the white woman initiated it, if it was ever found out, she would blame 
the black slave mm-hmm. saying like they raped me and all this other stuff. So it's just like this way that white women have to be protected. And in a way, some white women do use that to their advantage against other people of color. But in terms of like his performance, he doesn't really care about white women. He doesn't really care about any woman for that matter. He only really cares for himself. And apparently the empire it was a way for him to perform some sort of emotion on behalf of the empire. Like she died on behalf of, of Oxford. That's all he really cared about. If he were to ever interact with any other woman, including his own goddamn wife, he doesn't talk to them with any respect, any reverence. I'm not sure why dead white women apparently get <laughs> like get the gold star, but apparently she does as in, in comparison to any other woman in his life. Well, I think there's a line. I know it has to do with like people of color or bodies of color in that case, or in the case of the book, but I think it's either Robin or Victoire that talk about how for them to matter, they have to be dead first. It's true. And I think that it's the same thing in the in terms of like, I guess, white women in this case as well, or Evelyn, she had to be dead and for the right cause for it to matter to him. I also just think that it's comically ironic that Robin kills her with the same um, silver bar that kills... Evelyn? Or Griffin killed, yeah, Griffin yeah. and Griffin killed Evelyn with the same bar that he killed his own father. Is what you mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes, it was hilarious. I'm sorry. Is her name Evelyn, or is Evelyn, it Evie? It's uh, it's Evelyn Brooke. Yeah, but Evie was her nickname. Okay, because I have Evie. Okay, cut that out, please. Ignore me. No, we can question that. It is they do refer to her in the book as mm-hmm. Evie, like the teachers, like the okay. professors. But like on her gravestone, it was Evelyn Brooke. And she also has a plaque, I think, right, with her books yeah. on the desk. Uh, not, oh yeah. my Man, god, the way they love is, a dead white woman. <laughs> Sorry, you can't. It reminded me of like the John Mulaney um, skit where he talks about like the best thing. I think it's for the New York Times that you can be is like a dead baby because then you are an angel. And I'm like, wow, kill me, fucking relevant. Since we're on the topic of um, Lavelle, how? disgusted well i think everyone was disgusted but did like did you see him beating robin like was that something you could have fucking predicted in the little bit we know of him yes yeah like literally i don't think people really understand how much children were not like children alone not even like children of color (laughs) were treated like literal property like they they thought that they were little adults they thought they had like the same brain and some of it even trickles down to today when some like boomers think that newborns are manipulating them to holding them like that's not how brains work at that age they literally think they're little people like people and that's why we had that joke in the beginning like they used to enlist like five-year-olds to work in the mines like (laughs) because they fit really good in the hole so like they kept them out of trouble. I think they mentioned something about that they in do. the book. Yeah. So Yeah, like, at the end. It keeps them out of trouble, don't worry. So like children were basically property and they were dispensable, especially because a lot of them didn't survive. So the ones that did survive, they needed to be able to like make their due. I think what was shocking though, the fact that he did it wasn't shocking, but the fact that how brutally it was described and how quickly it happened in the novel, like just was fucking it, shocking. That was shocking. That was shocking to me. Agreed. And over something so trivial, like reading a book that Lavelle had even bought him in the first place. Like, it wasn't like he was doing anything horrible. He was literally just sitting reading and he got so excited by what he was reading, he couldn't put the book down. And how many people who read have been in like a similar situation where you look up and like, oh, like an hour has gone by. As a child, yeah. too. It's, it's yeah. fucked up. But then if we think about, I mean, what Becky was talking about earlier, 
about how for Lavelle, everything is based around the British Empire. He was wasting the time that apparently he was supposed to be with his tutor. So for him, for like, sure. at no point has he been anything more than an asset. And he talks about it in the book as well. I just think like it felt so brutal because I think I had a hard time placing his age at first. And you find out a little bit later, like he's just 10, I think. Isn't he like 10 or 11? He's a baby. Yeah, he's like a tiny child. And I was like, what the actual fuck? And the fact that he is like, he is so accustomed to doing this, I would even, I would even assume, because he knew how to beat him without breaking anything. Yeah, because he wasn't the first one. Griffin was, I'm sure there were others before, like, for all we know. That's what I think possibly is, is what's happened here. Like, Griffin was just the one before Robin, but, you know, what about the others that have come before? Like, it's not like they've, they have some fine tuning on whatever the method to their weird genetic whatever they're trying to do is especially with him going to china and like oh my god what is that what is there's a word for it like him going somewhere specifically to have like a biracial child i can't you know what i can't remember what it is right now but he's a disgusting man i hate him and i'm so glad he's dead i was gonna say did you feel vindicated when his chest exploded i was so happy I was so happy. I can't even tell you. I was like, a man has died. I haven't been this happy since Bunny died. And then they just tossed him out to sea. It was so fucking I was so, I'm sorry. When they're all trying to like gather around to like figure out how to get the whole plan part was so funny to me. And again, it was very similar to the secret history with like the snow and falling and they're waiting for people to find the body as compared to when they're trapped on the ship and they have to keep convincing them that he's very sick. Yeah. I don't know why I find it so funny, but people under pressure and the way that they're cracking is just so hilarious to me because they're just like, how do we do this? How do we do this? And they're just like, we can't do it this way. It won't work. And they're all like bickering. And I'm just like, oh, my God, (laughs) this is a mess. Y'all are a mess. The entire time, I'm just like, can we just like get Letty out of the way, too? I didn't trust her one freaking bit. No, the way that Rami constantly got underneath her skin. And then Robin, who just wants, like, peace. And I don't blame him for that because he just wants to, like, not have to deal with it. And safety, right? Like, I get that. Yeah. It's it's not the comforts, but it's knowing that he has a place. Correct. Oh, my God. But I fucking hated Letty. The moment she's like, the British occupation is a good thing in India. I was like, choke, bitch. Die. I, I, I thought of you. Choke, I, like, I literally was like, Nav is going to say something about this, but like in a good way. Not like, she, <laughs> like, was, she has she, so many thoughts. Oh, my God. There was, And I, honestly, I fucking love I love what Kwong's done here because there's so many little nuances. Like, I wish that we were at a point where we could like even entertain the thought of like asking her a few questions and like i was so tempted to dm her because there are these like little things that as like someone that's indian i'm like picking up on little references and i'm like am i thinking too hard or is it like is this a thing because even rami's name like ruffy it's not an uncommon name but muhammad ruffy was a huge like i mean obviously not of that time but he is this huge singer that like down to like my cousins that are younger than me now listen to his music and then they bought up guzzles which kind of like it wasn't an exact reference to him but it went like hand in hand and i was like yes i love it the mangoes and like just talks of Kolkata and bengal were like beautiful but then she has like these little instances where 
white people or like Letty, I would say even in this situation when she talks about, you know, her dad was there for three years and Rami straight up is like, could be he pointed a gun at my sister once. I'm like, oh, fuck, yes. Like the brutality of the British was so bad. But then the ignorance, like she claims to know so much because she's read so much. But she refers to Rami, I think, at some point as a Hindu, even though he's very obviously Muslim. And almost everyone is referred to as a Hindu, even though I like I get it. It's called Hindustan or India at that time. The ignorance, despite thinking they know so much of this occupied land, they don't know the bare minimum that not everyone from there would be a Hindu. I was like, fucking beautiful. And like the fact that at one point Rami says it too, just fucking chef's kiss. I can't. And I just, there was this one other line. It's after she kills Rami. It, and yep. it, tie, it ties back to something I think you said, Rebecca, about the way that they treat white women. But also, I think it's Robin that says it. He says that she couldn't take that a foreigner had, had rejected an English rose. Yep. She couldn't take it and she killed yeah. him. And I was like, oh my fucking God. And the fact that she thinks she's obligated to his attention or his affection. I was the entire time I was just like, I am so happy that he does not let her get an inch like fuck you anyways that was your TED talk yeah there was a lot more but like it just i was so like it was it was so exciting to read and to be able to place historically especially because i think even later on like through rami i don't know if it's conscious or unconscious or what sort of research went into it but she really does place him so well within like i guess this is the victorian era that they are living through because um, he has this quote where he's like, what do you think? I came to Babel because I wanted to be a translator for the queen. And I'm like, this is so fucking relevant because Queen Victoria was known for like these two Indian men that are so closely tied, at least for us, to the British court. One being Abdul Karim, who was a, um, he was a Muslim Indian that served as a, he, he came as a servant, but like was later considered a munshi, which is a clerk or a teacher. And Maharaja Dilip Singh, who was another, um, he was like a displaced king. Um, well, his mother was regent, but he was basically, he lived his entire life in England in the queen's court. And was just the idea of him thinking that, or him even being described as potentially taking up space like that was just, it was such a minor detail, I would even say. But, like, fucking loved it. Like, loved it. And, again, thank you for the part two of the TED Talk. I feel like there's so much to respond to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I just kind of went off. Um, I think, firstly, my response to you is I don't think you were ever thinking too much into it because there was so much detail into it. And it just really depends in terms of how much you know about history beyond, like, British history. And those who knew that were kind of rewarded with that. Like, if you knew these little tidbits of history, you were sort of rewarded with, like, the fact that these, you could see it. It's like another, like, layer of the matrix that you could see that was embedded in the novel. So I don't think you were ever reading too much into it because I feel like a lot of the parts that she included, specifically historically, were on purpose. I agree completely. I feel like an insane amount of research went into this book. Like, you're probably hitting the nail right on the head. I feel so seen. You should feel seen. Rami was such a fantastic character. His chapter in and of itself, like, broke me. He had such powerful lines in there. Like, when he was like, he did not know that impressing a white man could be as dangerous as provoking one. 
And then the one that really broke my heart was like a few pages later when it was like he grew so good at hiding well, that um, he almost began to lose begin to lose himself in the artifice. A dangerous trap indeed for a player to believe his own stories to be blinded by the applause. I was like, fuck, mic drop. Yep. I mean, as a side note, this was also my like little tidbit of like enjoyability in addition to everything else was like just based on the fact of like artifice and masks and all that stuff i was just there was so much psychoanalysis in this novel i was just like okay i know freud is not born yet but like this 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 is it like the the fact of like the doppelganger part with griffin they even say Heimlich and unheimlich in the beginning. They yep. discuss that where like Heimlich is the familiar, what you're comfortable with. And in psychoanalysis, that's sort of like the known and the unheimlich is like the uncanny. It's like it's like the the childlike fears when you feel that in real life, like the unfamiliarity. That's where like a lot of fear and like horror based uh like genres sort of are birthed from and if you do read like the turn of the screw that is very much a part of it with the doppelgangers and everything like that there was just like so many layers of good things but yes i also agree Rami was like one of my favorite like top characters his his lines were so good and every time he said something like absolutely like accurate i'm like trying to figure out what to say this is accurate but yep so brutal to letty it was just like yes continue to do that but like you know what the unfortunate part is like the end of the story as much as he was accurate and right and how, how many times people tried to convince letty she would still always side with the empire and that was like the most frustrating part like she learned nothing well, i don't think she wanted to like oh, I, yeah no point no agree the beginning <laughs> She she didn't care. She wanted the attention on herself. It's like that saying where white people like want to be oppressed. In certain instances, that was Letty. She wanted to be oppressed. If Victoire had something to complain about, so did she. And I was just like, you dumb bitch. There is like a literal term. I can't remember the exact name to it, but it's like running to innocence. But that's kind of like what Letty did to... Uh, sort of victimize herself because she hid behind and some people do do this they hide behind their like oppressed identities in order to shirk any responsibilities while also Mm -hmm. hiding behind the things that give them power like there was a lot of people recently that are um how do i broach the subject they're like white and male but they can hide behind their queer identity to be obscenely misogynistic towards women you know what i mean like they're saying yeah. but i'm gay and male like i'm gay and you like that doesn't mean you can't be misogynistic at the same time so they sort of they hide behind their own oppression in a way like you were saying now exactly that but it, like that that's what she was doing she was trying to hide behind her white fragility like white womanness she wanted to win or at least get an equal prize in the oppression olympic yeah like and i mean speaking of that when she approached professor craft oh <laughs> brutal i i kind of felt bad for her in that instance until like later <laughs> i was like that was like so like out of pocket you know what i mean i was like oh she was like as a woman do you have any she's like get the fuck out basically like i mean she's like women don't belong here i'm like oh what the fuck is happening and i was just like okay sure she just basically made letty leave immediately please get out and she was crying and i was like my god but the fact of the matter is like that's one inch of what everyone else experienced in terms of like their daily oppression if that makes sense like Like, her complaint was she hated that the boys had to be with them to check out um, 
to check out any books. What about Rami and Victoire that would have to wait until their friends were there to even be served anywhere? Or the fact that they couldn't go places because um, I think Rami says it at one point that um, people think that he's going to make their seats dirty because his skin is darker. I'm like, how are you so blind to everything else around you? But your oppression seems to be your forefront. Like it, it is always at the front. She hides behind her dead brother as like a scapegoat. Like that, that is how I guess Victoire is the one who brings it up. But she's just like, that's meant to that's meant to be a reason to forgive her, to not be so hard on her for her ignorance. Like, honey, boo boo. No, Babel is free for you. Go learn. Yeah, her ignorance is definitely something else. She almost, like, she doesn't almost. She thinks that they should all be grateful that they were even let in the door in the first place, when that's definitely not how this works. These characters are basically being used as sources of extraction for their talents and, like, for their language and for their translation skills, and she just doesn't care. Like, in the even the scene where she finds out about the Ermi Society, they're comforting her. Yep. It's them that's largely in danger. It's the three of them that have undergone this constant racism and discrimination, but they're comforting Letty because she's uncomfortable. Well, And Lord forbid that the white woman be uncomfortable. (laughs) I think it also derives from some, like, I think she does have a superiority or like, not a superiority, an inferiority complex. Because these kids, at least the boys we know, have been handpicked and trained to be here. I would even argue Victoire to a point with her education, whereas, and they're they're applauded for it. I think that's within the first few scenes they have together when they're talking about how more of these, um, what is it, non-romantic or non-Germanic languages that are needed and prized more here. And she's kind of just like, well, what about me? And I'm like, well, bitch, what about you? No one cares. But, like, I think that's, like, that's always been there for her, for her to feel important, for her to feel that she is as important and as valued as these other three friends of hers, quote-unquote. I won't even call them real friends because she's a dickhead. But, um, like, <laughs> Sorry. she is. She is. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I, if you go through, like, my little Babel Thoughtsies document, it's just a lot of, like, Letty hate. But she like needs, she needs to she needs to feel like she's just as important. She's not one of those people that can be happy that she's just there or she's made it. No, she needs to be just as oppressed. She needs to be going through just as much torture and she needs to be just as special for her to feel like she belongs to that group of friends. And I hate her for it. Agreed. My only other comment on this, besides like what you've said, which is also very accurate, I also think it's the uh The cocktail of race and class, because she isn't someone that was like plucked out of like nowhere. She came from a certain kind of family. And I think the way that she also responds, not that anyone poor would necessarily be less traitorous, treacherous, traitorous. um, But I think the way that she has lived so comfortably also impacted a lot of her behaviors if that makes sense as well like her class doesn't is is not a non-factor as well i agree completely because she doesn't even want anything to do with the revolution like when i first read the scene where she starts acting kind of sketchy when she's with the Irma society i was like maybe she's just gonna fuck off like maybe when she goes out to the front for some air maybe she's just gonna leave but then the more i thought about it it was like it makes sense that she has to go against them because 
them succeeding would disrupt all of her, her comforts. Life. Yeah, the social, the economic, like her all fucking the tea time. Everything. All the privilege that she receives would be completely destroyed if they succeed. So it doesn't matter that they've been friends for years. It doesn't matter that she thinks she loves Remy. It all that matters is, like we said before, her. And she has to save herself, which is just so different from the other characters. Yeah, no, when she was giving them a weird look when she was leaving that building, I knew. I knew she was like, this bitch is going to call the fucking cops. Rebecca, like, deliberately, um, like, hinted at the thing that makes the whistle go if there's any intruders near. And I was just like, that's a mystery tool we use later. Like, and then, like, uh, let's say, like, 25 pages later, that happens when she's leaving. I'm like, something's happening. She's refusing to take a walk in the yard. She deliberately wants to go outside. I was like, she's, she's, she's doing something. And she's deliberately wanting to go to the side that they are encouraging not to. Yep. The the exit. Yep. <laughs> I really hope at some point she is miserable in her life. I mean, she is miserable and I know she it, but is. I want her to be even more miserable. I don't want her dead. I just want her miserable. Also, there was a little thing about Ch- Charles Dickens was racist. Yeah. I didn't know that. Well, I also don't know any of his books, but I know who he is. I just... Just assume anyone from that time and era is racist. Fair. They literally made a a comment about like how abolitionists really did not like do anything in terms of like removing slavery was mostly because it was just very not cost effective. Right. So it's just like just assume just assume because even like when you look back at that era as well, the reasons why um, they were going for like being like anti-slavery wasn't even because they saw other people of color or black people specifically as people it was like oh we need to take care of these poor people like because they're basically children it was not like they thought of them as whole rational human beings it was because of like religion basically yep religion and money yikes I did like all the like historical connotations, like especially towards the end. I feel like it really ramped up when you saw all the strikes and it really reminded me of like, um, obviously, this is supposed to mimic like the Industrial Revolution with the way the silver bars are kind of working, like everyone uh, migrating from the pastoral into the city, the horrible working conditions in the factories, the I kind of like the the whole um, parliamentary debates between the Whigs and the Tories. It was all very well done. Fucking beautiful place. She even does, um, I think we talked about this during Secret History as well, where they date the novel really well. Even with like the inventions, the camera, I think it was. Oh my God. And then there was more. Hold up. I I, I made a list of these somewhere. Yeah, the photography one was really cool because Robin was like, photography was also a kind of translation. I'm like, that's really cool. The railway was one of them. Morse code. That's yeah, the Morse one. code. Also, did anyone catch the Bacchanalia mention? Yes. It was at yes. the ball, right? Died. Also, Becky, I thought of you at one point. Oh, no. There, no, 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 no. It's not that. <laughs> oh, no. oh, God. <laughs> there is this quote. It's in terms of like uh, about translation itself. They call it betrayal. Translation means doing violence upon the original, means warping and distorting it for the foreign, unintended eyes. And all I could think about was that plane ride from Vancouver to Toronto, where I was, I think you just like looked over at my screen and I was watching, um, I think I was watching Hamdil De Chukisinam and it was one of my favorite songs playing. It's like fucking poetry in motion. 
and you're reading the lyrics and you're like, what the fuck is this? Yes. And I was like, it's an assault upon She's like, don't song. look at the lyrics. I was it's, like, what are these no, lyrics? It's like, it's, it, like, it is actual fucking poetry, that song. And I looked at the lyrics and I'm like, these don't exist. I suddenly don't know how to read because they were so wrong and off. And I was like, Rebecca. It was like a really weird pop song. I was like, what is, it was just, it no, was so. No, it wasn't even a pop song, but they were, they made it seem like one. No, like, you have the lyrics. I was like, what is happening here? It was not, it was not heightened at all in terms of like the way that they were uh, no, translating it, violent, it. The betrayal. <laughs> it was a violent crime. Yeah, literally. I did see a criticism about that in regards to this book about how the, I guess like um, there's a word for it and I wrote it down. It starts with an E. Etymology? No. Enema. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not enema. Are you sure? Yeah, I think it's etymology. Yeah. Etymology, Um, like the origin of the word? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And how language is used to like trace history and culture and like the understanding of human experiences. I thought that was really well done. There were a lot of, I guess, like references to like previous languages with their own definitions that I was not aware of. But I did see a criticism that a lot of it was not super, um, I guess, like they expected it to be more complex. I didn't necessarily feel that way, but I also don't study that. I didn't think about it that hard either. Okay. Because I just, I thought it was like a... not like an unfounded criticism because this is a work of kind of like this is popular fiction right it's not mm-hmm. um an academic textbook so it seems something strange to Being to criticize yeah. yeah well i think a lot of like a lot of the dare i say reddit critics because i looked into them i think after you mentioned something in one of our group chats it seemed like people were looking really hard to complain about something. That one was actually from the Harvard Crimson. Um, they had a couple Whoa. of criticisms really? in there. Yeah. Yeah. But I also wonder if it's just Harvard being that stereotypical academic y where it's like, this wasn't complex enough. We wanted the origin of like more complicated words and phrases. She didn't have um, like 50 pages to explain one word, though. That's like exactly. my thing. Like, she could only go so far without losing the plot. <laughs> Yeah. How did you guys feel about the fact that we got like actual classroom scenes here opposed to like the secret history? Did it like engage you a bit more into the story and like the idea of what they do at Babel or were you guys bored? I thought it grounded the novel, at least in terms of like the institution, right? Like what happens Mm -hmm. on a day by day. It was very reminiscent of being in university where it's just like, I would like to die now. Like this is so overwhelming. (laughs) That was like a hashtag throwback to like those times when you're like, yeah, it starts out okay. And then it gets really not okay over time. (laughs) It was nostalgic in an unfortunate way (laughs) at certain points in terms of like the, the school aspect. But yeah, I think I agree with the secret history is really weird because it was about school but there was really no school involved with the exception of like a couple classroom scenes with julian i think that was like not even a handful i was like like I, i yeah i agree i think it really grounded it i really liked it i feel like considering what they're dealing with um you get so much context into why it's important and how it works actually with like the silver work that they do and like i guess quote unquote magic and how it's meant to like forward this like imperialist agenda like i i fucking i fucking loved it i thought i was gonna i I thought i was gonna hate it at first because i was like oh shit like am i gonna be reading a textbook but 
I guess that's what the Harvard Crimson wanted. I fucking love what she did. She gave us like, it's almost like a Spark Notes version where you, you feel like you're a part of it, but you don't need to have this memorized for an exam. You just know enough to know how it's going to work in the future. Agreed. I also really love the map of Babel at the front. Like I thought that was really nice and being able to visualize what she was explaining. And I thought I agree. I think all the lessons were very purposeful because even during the orientation, we have that professor, the piece of shit Playfair, who tells that story from Herodotus. I think that's how we say it about like the two students who go not students, these two people who go and um, basically become um translators and how like translation has been a facilitator of peace yada 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 it allows for communication which in turn makes possible diplomacy trade cooperation and brings about wealth and prosperity to all and it's all bullshit and because robin is so clever he catches on to it right away and is like well professor playfair is not even telling the whole story in this lesson because the two boys in the story were slaves exactly so it's like once again language and translations only telling like one side of the story one side of history things get lost in between and i thought like all those lessons were really powerful like they didn't feel random or boring they were all entertaining and they conveyed like the larger message a hundred percent agreed and I wouldn't even say this isn't like a on your fault. I wouldn't even say forgotten or dropped. I think it was like deliberately misplaced. Yes. No, yeah, for sure. That's what I meant. Yeah. No, no, I know what you meant. It was like I felt like it wasn't in terms of like anything that was omitted was omitted on purpose. And that was yep. the betrayal of that translation because it was not again they have this discussion between faithful like what's faithful like in terms of yep. like a translation but like i feel that wouldn't be faithful to the real life experiences of those boys it was just dropped off of the map in terms of the explanation because they don't want to talk about slaves they don't want to introduce the fact that this is basically what three out of the four of them really are in right now <laughs> and so that they can make trade deals with countries they would like to colonize extort. yeah and colonize exactly and that's why I feel like towards the end, Remy gives like that kind of definition of what he thinks translation is. And just the contrast is so beautiful. It's when Robin's about to sacrifice himself and he remembers that first day back at Oxford and he talks about falling in love. And Remy kind of says like, that's just what translation is, I think. That's all that speaking is, listening to the other and trying to see past your own biases to glimpse at what they're trying to say, showing yourself to the world and hoping someone else understands. I was like, it's so beautiful. So fucking poetic. It was just gorgeously written. It was a very intricate novel. I think really in terms of, I guess, since we're talking about like critiques, my only real critique with this was the pacing. I had some hard times getting through it at certain points. Like it was just there were some parts that were really slow or lingered. And maybe again, it was on purpose, but it was also just equally, even if it was on purpose, hard to get through. Like I felt so mundane, especially like where it was like very monotonous, particularly with Robin's life. Yeah, with Robin's life, sometimes the way that they described it, I was just like, my God, I don't want I like not that I don't care. It's just like this is this is hard to get through in terms of like as a reader trying to get through his perspective at this point in time in his life. I think controversially, 
I disagree. I fucking loved it. I I sped through this book, and I usually hate when they linger too much on the mundane. But I like I maybe it was because I was like speed reading a little bit, but I fucking loved it. I was making notes on every page, so I oh, was yeah. just <laughs> there were some parts where I'm just like, dear God, this is the pacing was just like it was it was never too fast. Some parts were just honestly way. I I feel like it lingered too much. That's too fair. much. Yeah. I feel like I'm somewhere in between because I definitely get that. There was a point where I was like, "Are is the Hermes Society going to show up? Like nothing all talk major no answers. has happened. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then we do get that portion towards the end where not that it feels rushed, but just a lot happens at once. Like once the police show up, all of a sudden, like everyone's dead. Oh, yeah, that's true. Like, I don't even care about everyone's dead. Like things happen suddenly is yeah. my my that with me but it's just like there were yeah there was a lot not a lot of answers you just kind of went through his day-to-day without any sort of like plot development let's say that no i agree completely speaking of though dying in quick succession we have not yet spoken about griffin or anthony how do we feel i was really sad yeah i wanted like well i i figured griffin was going to die i kind of thought i i figured it from the beginning i i wasn't so sure about robin but Part of me wanted Griffin to be able to have something to, like, live for. And he did for a while, but he, like, I don't know. I just didn't want him to die. Like, that just... I wanted him to be able to pick up the pieces, which, like, I guess Victoire does at the end. But it was sad. Anthony, I fucking knew he wasn't dead when they claimed him to be dead. Yeah, the professors were, were acting him. so weird. Yeah. I was just like, this bitch is Hermes Society. But, I like, I, I was sad for him dying, too. Because he's, like, that happy face we've known from their first, like, entrance into the Babel building. And it just, it was sad. Not as sad as Griffin, I think, for me, but it was sad. I honestly, reversal, I was more sad about Anthony dying than Griffin. Like, I was sad about Griffin dying, but I guess I kind of anticipated it based off of his behavior that it was going to happen. But I felt like Anthony was just, like, he really just did not serve that. (laughs) Like, he... He he was doing his best. He was trying to go the right like way about doing things while Griffin was like, let's just blow things up. And it just made me so sad for Anthony. I don't know why. It just like I felt way more attached to him in a way because I was just like I just I was rooting for him like in terms of like I think his survival final goodbye and like that consolation he gives. Right. Like you guys are safe here. Yeah. And he's, like, he's so convinced of it. And I'm just like, yeah, fuck, you're, you're going to die. He believes in a system that will never benefit him or help him or care about him in any way. It's just so unfortunate. And such a contrast to Griffin, who, like you said, is just kind of like burn everything to the ground. I think he has that line where he says violence is the only language they understand because their system of extraction is violent. And Robin definitely takes that on towards the end. And whereas I feel like Victoire is almost like more on Anthony's side, like it kind of goes back to that idea of like do you take the more reserved approach or do you blow it all to the ground when it comes to like revolution that's actually really interesting um because it's almost like you mentioned they take each like griffin and anthony's approach they were their mentors so it kind of like makes sense but there is this line that um professor chakravarti has about how Indians were criticized for being pacifists or something, but yes, there's dignity in a quiet fight, which I this, loved. This is exactly s- what I'm referencing. I oh, fucking loved it. But at the same time, I'm like, 
Still got nothing done. No, well, that, but there also was, there were two, it was kind of the same as what was happening in Babel. There was the Victoire side, which is, there is dignity in a quiet fight. And then there was, there were the revolutionists, like Puckett Singh and a whole bunch of others whose names I can't remember right now. And I feel like an awful, awful Indian, but whatever, that were fighting. It was more of like a, not a guerrilla warfare, but they were taking more extreme measures to fight against a system that wasn't designed for them to succeed. If you had to pick an approach, which one would you have picked? I think I'm biased because I grew up on the stories of Bhagat Singh being from, like my parents being from Punjab. I would take the more radical approach, I think, in terms of if I knew that it was a system that continually has failed all efforts thus far, like, yeah, I would um, I, I probably go a not so peaceful way, like not like violence, but there, there would be no quiet dignity. I would agree with Nav. I would not go the the route of working within the system because the system is actively not going to ever work for you. And it showed when they gave the pamphlets, when even that huge bridge fell, the truth of the matter was they don't give it. They don't care. Like, look at not even now. Like, look at us. Look at us now. The world is literally on fire. Nothing has changed. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing will continue to change. And as like Letty brought up, they're just going to go to their nice little estates somewhere else in the world and wait for this all to blow over and then come back when they can get what they want. Yeah, so. the retreat to the pastoral. So, yeah, I agree completely, too. There's even that line. Like at first I was kind of like, I kind of get where Victoire is coming from, like still wanting revolution, still wanting to work outside the system, but not wanting to burn Babel to the ground. But then Robin has this line where he says, but Robin had been bending for so long, even a gilded cage is still a cage. And I was like, damn, I understand. Ooh, that's I get kills it. his dad. Yeah. Yes. And there are a lot of gilded cages that currently exist. Want to talk about that as well? Not even talk about that. That's like a whole other podcast. But like there's so many gilded cages that we operate in currently that still have not gone away. The more aware you are of them sometimes, I feel like the harder it is to operate in it. And it sucks. Agreed, because that's exactly what happens to Robin. Yep. The more he starts to realize... How cagey like, is, the harder it is yeah, to breathe. Yeah, and I feel like the novel tackles some really deep, like, philosophical problems, too. Like, it's very much even like a trolley problem. Do you see the injustice and do nothing? Do you take the path of, like, comfort and compliance? Or do you stand up and fight against, like, the injustice? And thankfully, our protagonists... Fucking fights... I guess, like, my only thing, especially with this novel, is, like, sort of the the main characterness of it all as well, like, Letty, is, for example. And, like, I feel like a lot of, like, the, a huge commentary was that, like, especially nowadays when particularly white people talk about what they would do in certain situations when confronted with racism or confronted with a situation where they might have to do something. And a lot of people, including Letty, would think they were the good guy and they would stand up for what's right. But ultimately, they're going to go back to their creature comforts and not actually do anything at all. I feel like that was also a huge thing in terms of like not only the action, but the inaction. Well, like you said, Nav, Letty talked like she knew things and she understood things. But in the end, all she did was literally kill her friends. She has just as much blood on her hands. So fuck that bitch. So I think we can say she was everyone's least favorite character. Yeah, so it was everyone's most favorite character. Rami. <laughs> I would either have to say Rami or I really liked Victoire. I know she doesn't go down with Babel at the end, but I do I do really like her. 
oh, I loved her, but I, it was just something about Remy. Same. I love Remy so much. <laughs> he was my favorite. Fire. Yeah, it was like, again, the way that he just sort of called Letty out always immediately or not just Letty, but anyone else who said something stupid and maybe they didn't catch it but it was like cathartic when like <laughs> i think the first one well, not the first one but one of the most remember rememberable ones was he i think it was playfair or whoever was having them walk through anyways there was a statue of like was it william jones and he had oh, it was playfair yes. yeah oh my god i have that sorry go ahead yeah had it's the, the Indians, yes, on the, the Brahmins sitting on the floor. Yeah, I'm like, there's a word. Yes. I'm like, I don't want to say Indians generically. Like, there were specific Brahmins, <laughs> correct? I'm like, what was the word? Um, sitting on the floor, and it's like that's where they like to sit. And it was just like he made a comment, like, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> like, he was clearly being sarcastic, <laughs> and I was like, God, Very illuminating. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> also, my apologies. It wasn't Playfair. It was Billings. Okay, see, so, yeah, because he was introducing them around. Like, it wasn't. It wasn't Babel. He was, he was introducing them to something else, I think, wasn't it? Or was it, it was like outside? Some church or something? Yeah. It wasn't specifically in Babel. But either way, it was just like <laughs> Remy's response was correct. Yeah. He was like, he's so good. His responses are so quick and like so brilliant. I was just dying. I was trying. I was just like laughing. He always made me laugh, especially when like Letty said something fucking stupid. Yep. She literally got livid immediately. Just so it's brilliant. like being it, she hates her father on one hand for abandoning her and that's her sob story but she's also proud of Put his on a pedestal crimes. yeah like yeah like go fuck yourself he was a proud well i mean it could be compared i guess to like the way that people like upholds their veteran parents it's like even though they might have you know killed some innocent more people crimes. more crimes for oil <laughs> <laughs> so remy and victoire but i mean i feel like those are accurate accurate ones why did no one choose robin that was my question i think robin was an interesting character at no point did i hate him mm -hmm. but i think that because through him we saw other people in a more interesting light we didn't get to see so much introspection until later yeah is probably it i love rami robin and victoire love I don't think at any point was I like, I fucking hate Robin. Like, I think I understood him and his need for safety. Like, like, I think it's it's the fact Can't that we don't him. get that. Yeah, that introspection yeah. till later. Like, you feel for him. I think from the, the moment we meet him, like, it's it's utterly tragic. He is, his identity is wiped. He is beat to the point that he's bruised and it hurts for him to eat. Like, you, you feel for him what I think you should in each moment that you need to like you feel happy for him when he finds his friends and you're sad with him when he's sad you're angry with him when he's angry but i don't know if he he had enough of what i needed for him to be someone that i could love more than rami but i think like robin and i loved rami together and that's what's important yep Juan put them together for a reason Agreed. I think the, the appeal of Remy is definitely like how outspoken he is, but I definitely like, like we said, like understand why Robin was not that person. Cause like we see throughout the first like 300 pages how much he's struggling between like doing what he knows is right and fighting the injustice of the colonial empire and like just wanting like peace. In terms of like his own personal life, like to be selfish and to just stay at the university. But he knows that ultimately he'll never be happy there because he'll never be accepted there. But the isolation almost gives him this like delusion of acceptance, safety, yeah, or and not community, but safety, yeah. 
Yeah, that doesn't actually exist as soon as he walks out. Like even on his way to Oxford, there's that little kid staring at him and the little kid asks his mom, like, can he see? Yep. And I was just like, one, what the fuck? Two, like, this is just the reality for the three of them. As soon as they go basically step out of Babel, this is what they experience. So it's like, like we said earlier, it's lulling them into a false sense of security that doesn't actually exist. And he breaks free of that, which is inspiring. I might like him more than I thought I did. Oh, no, I, I love him. I just I love it's the fire. <laughs> it is. It really is. It's the snark. I cannot resist a snarky character. Literally. Agreed. Like, Victoire was sweet. I love her. But also, mm. Rami just made me laugh. So, like, he gets he, he gets the, the trophy of favorite character as of right now. Yay. Well, on the topic of our favorites, do we want to rate the book now? I'm not going first because this was my pick. <laughs> okay, I'll go first. It was a five for me. Did Rebecca just disappear? Yeah, I don't know how I'm like, I'm, oh, I'm <laughs> I was like, I hear nothing. I'm still like last episode where I'm like in between two ratings instead of it being between a three and a four. It's now a four and a five. I am just thinking about the books I gave a five compared to how I sort of was able to read through this. And I'm going to give it a four. That's and it's fair. not because of the like it was honestly because of the pacing, which made it really hard for me to get through at certain points. But I'm sure if I did like a reread, it'd be different. But like that, me right now, I'm at a four. Vanessa? I'm going with Nav. I'm also giving it a five. The pacing is probably my only critique. Like I loved everything else. I love the footnotes, the interludes with the other characters. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna forgive her for the pacing and give her a five. I mean, at least we all didn't rate it the same this time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Before we wrap things up, we want to thank everyone for listening and leaving us their lovely ratings. Hopefully you enjoyed reading Babel as much as we did. So typically now comes the part where we spin from the Wheel of Doom. However, this time we are giving me a break because technically I was supposed to be on my honeymoon, but life is a nightmare. Anyways, we will not be posting a wheel pick for the month of September and we will be posting a misfire that we all enjoyed. The misfire pick was Convenience Store Woman by Sayaka Murata. So we'll see everyone again on the 15th of September. But we will do the draw for the October pick early to make everyone's lives easier. Thanks for bearing with us. So just as a refresher, the whole premise of our show is based on six books that are randomly pulled from a list we've all contributed to. First is the list of good books, so books we've heard good things about or just generally wanted to read. And then there's the forbidden selection of bad books. That list generally consists of what we consider poorly written erotica or books that would generally torture us mentally. Now we randomly pull five books out of the good list and one book out of the bad list prior to the show. That bad book is a bullet in the chamber, and here we have our Russian roulette, so to speak. Now we shall begin. So the first out of the good books is How to Sell a Haunted House by Grady Hendrix. That was suggested by Vanessa. My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix, suggested by Nav. Manhunt by Gretchen Felker Martin. That was suggested by Vanessa. The Haunting of Hell House by Shirley Jackson, and that was suggested by Nav. The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. That was suggested by Nav. And the bad book is Love in the Time of Serial Killers by Alicia Thompson, and that was suggested by Nav. So there's a lot of Grady Hendrix. <laughs> Three. There's a lot of Nav. There's a lot of Nav. Not a single Rebecca pick on this, but this is fine. I'll just cry in my corner one day. Um, so let me just spin. I mean, this is not really surprising. 
But uh, <laughs> the pick we got was the Southern the Southern Book Club's yes. Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix, <laughs> and that was suggested by Nav. You're welcome, everyone. I mean, honestly, all of the books out of that were looking good because I did want to finally read a Grady Hendrix pick, so I'm okay with that. I've heard so many good things. I literally anything. I would have been okay with anything Grady. I've been wanting to read something by him for so freaking long. Thank you, Nav, for that one. I guess we'll see everyone again in October. I repeat, October with the Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. Have a good one, folks. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed spending some time with us. As a reminder, we post our podcast on the 15th of every month. If you want to read along and have the financial means to, please try to support your local bookstores. But we don't judge. If reading isn't your thing, or you just don't have the time, audiobooks are just as great. If you like what you're hearing, please drop us a rating or a review on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us on Twitter, TikTok, Goodreads, and Instagram at Revolver Reads. If you have any book suggestions of your own or reviews for the books we read, please feel free to send us an email at revolverreads at gmail.com. If you're submitting a suggestion, please don't forget to let us know if it's a neutral or a good book or a quote-unquote bad book, in your opinion. Have a good one, folks.